Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC interviews. Today we're joined by Dan McCrum, part of the FT Investigations team. Dan began his career at Citigroup in the early 2000s before moving for a brief stint here on the Investors Chronicle in 2006. He then moved to the FT as a writer on the Lex column and subsequently covered US hedge funds, managed the capital markets team and spent time reporting for and editing FT Alphaville. But he is best known for the work he did between 2015 and 2020 and beyond on Wirecard, the German payments processor. Those investigations ultimately prompted the company's collapse in June 2020. Dan has now written a book on the entire saga uh, called Money Men. And there's even a Netflix documentary released earlier this month called Scandal. That's Scandal with a K and indeed an exclamation mark, I think. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I have very fond memories of uh, writing for Investors Chronicle back in the day. I think you can probably still find a few of my terrible stock tips in the archive somewhere. Yeah, we can. Uh, maybe we should do a, with your burgeoning fame, we should do a piece on how those have fared over the years. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, that's a hostage to fortune for all of our writers, but, but there we are. So Wirecard, I mean... You know, this is a subject with which I'm sure all of our readers are familiar, at least in outline. But let's just recap to begin with, and then we'll talk about some of the issues and the the thrills and spills, if you will, in a bit more detail. And then we'll talk a little bit about counting fraud in general. To start with, though, as I say, why don't you just kind of give an overview, if, if that's possible, of what you were looking for and what you found with Wirecard, what the issues, which is uh, underplaying it, really were there. Yeah, so this story started all the way back in 2014, when a hedge fund manager says to me, would I be interested in some German gangsters? And it turns out it's this little company back then worth about 4 billion euros. And it does something to do with payments, helping companies take credit cards. And there are two theories about it. It's a bit fraudy, or maybe because it's moving money around. It's laundering cash for all sorts of unsavory businesses online. So I start writing, um, some short sellers come along and attack the company, and nothing really happens until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and joins the DAX index, Germany's equivalent to the FTSE 100. And its chief executive is strutting around stage in a black turtleneck, making all these promises about a cashless society and how wonderful it's going to be for Wirecard. At which point, a whistleblower knocks on my door gives me a truck full of documents which says, hey, there actually is fraud going on inside the company. And well, that's the point at which the story kind of goes a bit crazy. And it ends up with uh, me and my colleagues at the FT under investigation for market manipulation, supposedly leaking our stories to speculators. Russian intelligence shows up. And it turns out that one of the main bad guys seems to be making friends with Libyan militiamen and Russian mercenaries. And uh, it all builds to this climax of this battle basically over the reputation. Is the Financial Times corrupt? Or is one of Europe's biggest and most exciting tech companies a total fraud? We, we know how that ended, of course, fortunately, for, for uh, those of us working at the Financial Times and the wider Financial Times group. Uh, the answer was obviously that uh, Wirecard itself was a, a fraudulent enterprise. Um, can we talk in a bit more detail about what you did find over the years, I mean, as you say, there were competing theories to begin with. And one of the interesting things I found look, looking through the book and sort of reading the, the work over the years was was almost the way in which it, it kind of shifted 
the the things it was doing in, wrong, you know, over the years. To begin with, it almost looked like it was using kind of an M&A strategy to obscure and, and hide things. And, and then that kind of shifted potentially as a result of, of your kind of research looking into those things to a system where they were using what are called third-party acquirers to, you know, make up a lot of the, the profits. Yeah, so one of the lessons is that if you ignore small crimes, they become much bigger crimes. So Wirecard starts out laundering money, mainly for sort of gambling in places where it's illegal. And for various reasons, you know, the US cracks down, that business goes away. So it turns to accounting fraud instead. And what it was doing was buying up a series of rubbish companies nobody was interested in all over Asia. And that's where I come in. I start to look at some of these companies. And what I was trying to do is, there's this phrase American short sellers use, the guys who bet that share prices are going to fall. And it's, there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. So if you find a company lying about one thing, they're probably lying about other things, aren't they? And so what I found when I looked at some of these companies' work I was buying was what was happening in the ground in like corporate filings, little press releases, didn't match what Wirecard was saying in public. And so I think they were doing a fairly simple fraud. They were making up sales. And then, you know, when you're committing fraud, the real problem that you're trying to solve for is there should be cash here. The auditors are going to look for it. So how do we make that fake cash disappear? And one of the ways is you spend fake cash on fake assets. You say you're buying company X for 30 million when really you're just paying 3 million. And then so when we started writing about this, the fraud kind of changes. And it becomes almost cunning in its simplicity. What they do is they take advantage of these two theories, fraud or money laundering. And so what they tell people inside the company is payments which are getting a bit too hot to handle for Wirecard itself, they'll send them to these friends at these sort of special business called third-party acquirers you mentioned. And these friends process the payments. It's very lucrative and they send Wirecard back a commission. Now, it turns out there's nothing at all happening. It's all invented. It's completely fake. But what they do is they get past the auditors by saying, oh, no, the money's not really in our bank account. We have this lawyer who is looking after the bank accounts for us, and they're all in his name, so go talk to him. And, you know, one of the stupendously negligent things which Ernst & Young does is they just take this trustee's name for it. They don't go and contact the underlying banks and say, are the, these accounts real? Or at least not until it's far, far too late. And part of the reason, I suppose, Wirecard was able to do this or part of the reason it could, uh, you know, play both sides in a way was because of its relatively unusual structure in the way it was, you know, licensed by both Visa and MasterCard, which meant it could issue credit cards, but also handle money on behalf of merchants. I suppose that in itself was seen as, you know, a sign of innovation, but potentially, you know, the benefit of hindsight, in my case, you know, is a... Seems like an obvious warning sign, perhaps. Yeah, so one of the things Wirecard was very cunning at was taking advantage of multiple jurisdictions. So when it was laundering money, its bank in Germany would be involved, but the ultimate company would be over in this part of the world. And then the front shell company would be sort of in a little town in the north of England. And then it would be routed through a tax haven like the British Virgin Islands. And then the money trail would follow somewhere else entirely. So no one regulator sees the whole thing. And so it had a legitimate business, 
which it was just losing money on. You know, it's very easy to grow your business if you don't have to make a profit. So far as Wirecard and Visa might have been concerned, well, Wirecard doesn't quite seem to be as big as it claims, but they are still getting a lot of business from it. So it's not our problem. And, you know, Wirecard at one point had 6,000 employees. Now, lots of them were involved in the loss-making real business, but they kind of assumed that someone somewhere in this sort of disparate global empire, the profits were real. You mentioned, you know, the size of the business, 6,000 employees. Really, uh, a lot of the issues were, at the end, stemming from the fact that, you know, on paper, at least, there were these three businesses which are accounting for, I think it was 50% of revenues or profits, maybe both. Uh, It it was 50% of sales and basically all of the company's profits by the end. Yeah. So... As you say, you know, there was a lot of people, you know, doing work which they thought was was real and valuable, and and it was, you know, work of a kind, but but it wasn't actually providing anything for the uh, for the top or the bottom line. I mean, uh, what I find interesting in that aspect is, so we can definitely say this handful of guys at the centre, they definitely knew what was going on, and you know, the thousands around the edges, they had no idea. But as you get close to that centre, there's quite a diverse group of people who maybe should have had an inkling about what was going on, mm. maybe didn't look too hard at problematic things or look the other way. And it's that psychology, which I think is really interesting inside a big company. Yeah. I mean, that, I was going to come to that later on in terms of the, the psychology of investors as well, when it comes to stocks you own versus stocks you don't. But before that, you know, that maybe leads on to the question of whistleblowers. And, you know, there, there was one in particular, obviously, who really helped you, you know, crack the case. Although it was quite interesting to me that it was actually this whistleblower's mother who uh, was the one who initially made contact, as it were. I mean, she's one of the most incredible characters in the book. Um, because her son is this sort of high-powered corporate lawyer. And he goes into Wirecard's Singapore headquarters, half the global business they run from there. And... He's pretty much the first lawyer they've hired. And so he discovers there's a bunch of little frauds going on. People backdating contracts, forging documents, launches a full-blown internal investigation, finds that this stuff is real, it's happening. They can see people faking invoices. But he's the one who gets forced out. Now, as a safety measure, he takes copies of all the documents before he leaves. He's not quite sure what to do with them. He's busy trying to get another job. But his mum is not going to let them get away with it. She's this incredibly uh, sort of principled, um, you know, daughter of Sikh immigrants. And, um, you know, she'd been forced into an arranged marriage and kicked out her alcoholic husband. That's her sort of character. And so she starts contacting journalists. And I get back to her and say, what is this? This is amazing. And as soon as her son finds out, uh, Pav Gill is his name. He's like, oh my God, mum, what have you done? Yeah. But he agrees to do the right thing. And it's from his that decision by him that, you know, everything else uh, follows. Follows. But it does it does take time to, as with this whole saga, you know, it really was a saga. It does take time to follow. Um, and it did sort of take time. The whole thing, you know, you've written about this for, you know, half a decade before the House of Cards eventually came crashing down. I mean, did you did you find that, you know, frustrating? I know there were some, you know, concerning and, scary things by the end in terms of some of the suspicious activities you found going on around you. But did you find it from a journalistic point of view, you know, frustrating that you were writing all, all this stuff and, and, you know, you had uh, success, you know, the share price took notice, but then it was almost like, you know, a few months later it was forgotten, investors all moved on. 
how frustrating was that? I mean, so Wirecard did a good job of throwing a lot of smoke in the way. Said I was corrupt, said uh, my colleagues were corrupt. The FT had basically let us run amok. But putting aside that, I think there's a couple of things investors should think about. One of which was how hard it was to change people's mind when money was at stake. Because Wirecard was that classic, you know, retail investor stock, which had a huge following. It had made people rich, you know. It had gone up what, 10 times in a decade. So if you're holding Wirecard stock, you think you're pretty smart, right? You're a great investor. And that kind of bought this turtleneck wearing chief executive the benefit of the doubt. So people found reasons to explain away our stories. And I think initially, you know, there we go, well, these are just theories. And then when the Financial Times starts publishing evidence, look, here's cut and dried evidence of fraud. The mistake people made was they focused on the amounts. Initially, in the early stories, we were talking about, you know, $30 million of problematic contracts at a company with $2 billion in annual sales. People focused on the amounts instead of the practices. Why on earth are guys in the finance team forging documents? And why on earth weren't they all fired the second the company found out about it? So I think that was one of the mistakes. And then another one was, well, it was all very complicated. We'll wait for the authorities or Ernst & Young, the auditors, to sort it out. But I think there's also, you don't often ask professional investors to look at their conscience, do you? Um, that's not the point of uh, profit maximization. But I think there was definitely a period when people were aware of the money laundering theory. And they kind of, that kind of became an excuse. Wirecard was operating in grey areas, processing payments which no one seems to care about, not the authorities. I guess it's very profitable. So maybe that's why they don't talk in too much detail about where they make their money. And it kind of let them off the hook mm. because the investors figured, well, we're okay with that. It's a, it's a lesser evil and one they were yeah, prepared to, to tolerate. Um, for me, it was also, you know, the, the, the kind of behavior that went on around that in terms of what appeared to be, you know, or certainly, you know, you and your colleagues were being surveilled by someone. Um, I remember a Reuters reporter you mentioned in, in your book as well, uh, uh, Alistair, I Powell. Remember, Alistair Powell, yeah, he, when we used to work together years ago and he showed me, he showed me that someone had leaked, you know, his messages online and I was like, from that and that was 2016 you know and at that point on I was like well this you know something is very very strange here you know correlation is not causation at that time but but yeah but that, that psychology you know I wanted to talk about some of the investors because you know we can talk about short selling in a bit as well but that that concept you know as journalists and as short sellers you know you're trying to find out you know what's wrong you're trying to establish an error really where you know it's a very different mindset from if you're holding something you know which you want to go up there is the psychology there of not that you don't necessarily want to ask yourself difficult questions, but almost that you that you don't, you know, do the same kind of things naturally that a journalist or a short seller would do, whether that be, you know, looking up everything on companies' house and online and looking through these documents, looking for uh, you know, the flaws in the accounts. It, it's it can be, you know, we we try at the IC to talk about these things, but it can be very hard to do that when it's a stock that, you know, that A is doing well and when it's a company that you want to do well because you're holding it. I mean, just, I think that's kind of reasonable, though. We live in a, you know, a world where it's very efficient to trust that generally things are okay. Because how much time would you waste? If, you know, let's say you're invested in 50 companies in your stock portfolio. Are you going to go and track down every corporate filing and 
follow every single lead for all 50 of those companies just on the off chance that something's going wrong. Of course you're not. I mean, that would be a ginormous waste of time. So I think you can forgive people for not catching frauds. You know, it was perfectly legitimate to look at Wirecard and go, payment seems like a good idea. It's growing really quickly. Yeah, I'll buy that. I think it seems like there's a lot of momentum in the stock. Now, there was one very simple thing that you could have looked at that might have made you pause, which was Wirecard was growing very quickly and it claimed to be producing lots of cash every single year. But every single year, its debt went up. And just that simple question of, well, hang on a second, that doesn't make sense, did save some people from losing lots of money when it all collapsed. And it's a really simple thing, isn't it? But, you know, it's sort of, you know, there were lots of explanations which sort of waved it away. Yeah, always that question of cash flow and where the cash is and, and what's happening on the other side of the balance sheet, yeah, is really important. I mean, do you think the same, presumably the answer would be yes, but, you know, does the same mindset extend to the the professional investors, the big backers? You know, there was uh, Alexander Darwall, who's set up on his own now, but he was a Jupiter at the time, who was a big holder, had a big position in his funds. You know, for years I thought, you know, maybe he's uh, holding that because he couldn't possibly sell it because, you know, the the position was too illiquid. But really, I think, you know, it was potentially more of a case of, well, you know, this is a company with a good story. He believed in it. He he did believe in the, in the in the company. Did you, did you speak to them through the course of your investigation and kind of talk about their views on it or, or you know, how um, do you approach those people? No, I, I never managed to speak to Alexander, who's a fascinating example because, you know, in some respects, his career was built upon Wirecard because it was this mm. huge performer and a huge part of his portfolio. And um, I don't know what the exact proportion is, but I, I think, you know, a significant chunk of his career-making performance was built on the Wirecard rise. And... What's fascinating is, um, you know, right up until the end, in the face of really quite substantial evidence, you know, after the Financial Times published a story laying out, this is the fraud, these are the documents, these are the fake companies, here's all the evidence, look at it yourself. He told Marcus Brown how he had total faith in him and expected the company to be exonerated. And at that point, you have to ask, well, you know, Yours is a fiduciary responsibility. Did you not have a responsibility to go and look and examine all these things properly and not just go, well, I've got faith in my mate Marcus Brown? Do you think there's, you know, in the, the professional investment industry, you know, there, there, there are obvious incentives to, to, you know, believe the people in whom you invest, but, but also, you know, there's always this search for, for the next big thing as they look for, you know, inspiration innovation and sometimes there can be a fine line you know if you take the venture capital mindset of you know you want 10 you have 10 stocks you know i mean this wasn't uh, alexander Darwell's strategy but you know you have 10 high growth stocks nine will fail but one will go to the moon there, there's that aspect there's also you know you're looking for people you know the kind of maverick ceos the people who maybe seem a bit inconsistent and and out there but but you know they're the ones who think outside the box and deliver great success. I, I wonder if sometimes the, that kind of concept has, has turned people's heads as well to the point where, 
you know, you think it's all in the hands of the CEO, it's all in the hands of the great management team, and who are we to question them? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not going to find me rushing to the defense of active management. You know, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, the entire, the entire industry is built on post hoc justification. It's a lottery where a few people get lucky. And when you get lucky, you get more money. And once you've got enough money, you stop making risks, you stop taking risks. So you build your career. If you win, you get a big fund. And then you try and avoid making mistakes, which cause those investors to take enough notice that they pull the money from your fund. And given that's the business model, once you're successful, not to make big mistakes. Again, I think to risk approbation and humiliation by ignoring very credible evidence of fraud. Well, what were you doing in the first place? What were you really doing to earn those fees you've earned for so long? On the, the wider issue of, you know, ignoring the evidence, perhaps there, there were issues institutionally as well with the the establishment. Uh, I mean, that sounds very pejorative, you know, but in Germany, <laughs> in Germany, not wanting to believe almost that this company could be fraudulent. And it was, it's just an aside in the book, but it's quite an interesting comment you make when uh, you bump into Carson Block and he's trying to get his case against Casino, the, the French supermarket off the ground. And seems to be running into similar issues there. I mean, obviously that, as far as we're aware, is a very viable business. It sells actual stuff from actual supermarkets, but a similar thing in terms of, you know, in these two, you know, countries, people not wanting to believe that big big companies, you know, national totems can be, can have issues. I think he, I'm not sure if it was him or you in the book, kind of contrast that with the US where short sellers can maybe have more, more joy. I don't know if that's a a thing you've pondered for a long time, you know, or, or not at all, like whether it's there's some kind of, you know, cultural differences there as well that, that can create difficulties if you're trying to expose the truth. I mean, the, the German, or you might even say European reaction, remains hard to explain. I think there's an element of complacency. This wouldn't happen over here. There's that sort of whiff of distaste at, you know, Anglo-Saxon methods of capitalism. You know, short sellers, generally aren't loved or well regarded. Uh, I mean, there are some, so there are some terrific guys who are very smart in the book. I mean, uh, Leo Perry of Ennismore, um, Eduardo Marx of uh, Patento, Bruce and Ollie at uh, Greenvale, who all do, did terrific work, sort of, you know, really trying to get to the bottom of what was going on. And they're not the sort of stand up and make a big noise, smash and grab type guys like Carson Block. But again, that's slightly dissatisfying. It doesn't really explain all of it. And, um, and even in the US at the moment, there's a bit of a backlash against um, activist short sellers who are being um, investigated mm. by the FBI for, you know, does it constitute market manipulation? And it's kind of weird, isn't it? If it's the other way around, if you stood up and said, I've done lots of work and I think this company is an absolute buy, it's going to the moon, it's brilliant. Well. Isn't that what, you know, ARK has been doing with Tesla forever? You know, we, we get used to investors talking their book, but somehow if you turn around and say, well, I've done loads of work and I've put a big short position on and I'm going to publish all my results about the company, somehow that is considered much more nefarious, which yeah. I, I don't tend to subscribe to. It's another thing you, you mentioned is John Hempton. Again, you know, he was looking at this, this the greatest short that never was. He's another hedge fund uh, manager. This mining company, I think it's in Canada or something like that, where you know everything looked suspicious until he eventually got even closer to the 
the truth and visited and, and found out that actually it seemed to be okay after all. Well, you should you should try and get him on to uh, tell that story because he tells it much better than I can. Certainly than I have there as well. But yeah, but yeah. Um, he so John John was you know John likes the Mark Twain phrase, which is um, a mine is a hole in the ground with a liar on top, and um, and so he was looking at one of these in Canada. I think it was mining silver, and it was trying to prove that it had a decent mine prospect. But it had sent all its ore to be crushed and sampled in Montana. And he was looking at the rail lines and going, well, that makes no sense whatsoever. You'd have to take this sort of several thousand mile detour to get from British Columbia to this place in Montana by rail. And by the way, there wasn't even the right railhead. How would you even load it onto the train here? And um, none of this makes any sense. And he was sort of, he describes going through this process of, you know, every time you do it, you think, yes, okay, that can't work. Okay, we're really getting onto something. This is, this is definitely a lie. They're definitely lying about something. But then he or one of his team finally speak to a guy who lives on an Indian reservation near the mine. And he was hired as a laborer to literally fill sacks full of ore and pick them up by hand and load them onto boxcars where they were sent all the way around to Montana. And hence, it was the greatest short that never was. And that's the thing you have to be careful, you know, as a journalist, as an investor, you know, that sort of bias creeping in. Um, yes, I'm right. Yes, I'm right. Until suddenly you're like, oh, oh, okay, it does all make sense. But that is also, you know, that's also with a way of explaining what I tend to think the investment process should involve. Do you understand this business? So a great example is a company called Quindell, which in some respects was the UK version of Wirecard. Um, although I should note, it was investigated by the Serious Fraud Office for a very long time, which I think dropped its investigation last year, prosecuting no one. So clearly it wasn't a fraud. What it was for a time was the most valuable company on AIM. Mm. It was worth about 3 billion quid, I think, from memory. And its main output was press releases. It claimed, you know, it constantly put out press releases, like multiple a week talking about its technology and its technology wins and all the things that were great about it. And it was something to do with insurance and technology. But it was impossible to actually work out what it did. And it took quite a lot of effort. And then it turned out, oh, actually, it's a law firm. It had bought a couple of law firms, and it was just processing loads and loads and loads of personal injury cases. And actually, what it was doing was it was claiming it was going to win loads of hearing loss cases. So it would basically set up shops in outside supermarkets, and you could go in and have a free ear test, you know, test your hearing. And it's like one of those things like whiplash. Only you can say whether your hearing works or not. There's no sort of outside authority who can test it. And so they basically were just signing up loads and loads of people, you know, who had worked in noisy bars or factories, telling them they could sue their former employer, and then booking that basically as profit going, well, we're probably going to win most of these cases. So we'll just start accumulating um, sales as we do the work. 
And obviously it was all nonsense. Like they didn't do that. They were actually losing loads of money and it was a bit of a scandal. But it had, again, this crowd of very English, really supportive investors who don't seem to have worried about what it did. You know, it just made them lots of money. Well, that momentum can be a significant uh, thing, can't it? Which I suppose, again, psychologically, it can be difficult to fight whether you're uh, invested or, or otherwise. Um, the, let's go back to Wirecard itself. Yeah, sorry, I got completely yeah. distracted. With, well, no, no, uh, I, I, you know, we, could, we could spend a, a long time, I think, talking through the, the various uh, um, uh, UK companies with the checkered histories too. But uh, um, just, uh, yeah, I'm curious to know if, if you sort of have an idea of what you thought the end game would be from their perspective, or what they thought the end game might be, you know, the, the management team, you know, the ones with knowledge of the situation. You know, at some point, the music has to stop playing, or maybe, you know, I think there was, obviously there was the suggestion that Deutsche Bank might be uh, there to effectively, you know, a merger that would bail them out and allow them to hide the numbers. I don't know if you've kind of considered so, what they thought the, the master plan would be at the end of it all, how to get away with it, in short. I mean, so the chief executive, Marcus Brown, somewhat hilariously to my mind, maintains that he had no idea about the fraud and thought he was really a billionaire and was running a very successful business. And it was um, his protege, Jan Marslek, the guy who likes to hang out with mercenaries, who was behind all the fraud. But I think there are basically four options if you're running a big, successful international corporate fraud. One is that you sell yourself to someone else. You get a big, not particularly bright, slow-moving US tech company, say, to come along and buy your business. Another is to buy a big business and basically make it all go away in the wash. So one of the things which... Um, Wirecard seems to have been contemplating was buying Germany's biggest financial institution, Deutsche Bank. And, you know, we can debate whether they would have got away with it had they really tried. But, you know, Deutsche has so many problems that maybe a couple of billion euros being missing, they might have got away with it. The other is you literally just keep the fraud going until you become, you know, these things are exponential. So eventually you'll become the world's richest man. And who knows what happens there? Or the other, is that you find an excuse to basically blow up the business and um, make it all go away. I thought they might do that with COVID. You find some way to completely reset the business. Oh, everything's gone wrong, or we've had a problem in our industry, something like that. And, you know, you sort of crash it, shut up shop, and all leave before um, anything can happen. And then it makes it quite hard to prove in the end. But really, I think what you, the, the problem with these big frauds is they become too big to stop. And so you are left spinning plates. So I think, you know, when Patisserie Valerie collapsed, I certainly remember reading that it seemed like the people who have been doing that have been sort of, you know, they were working harder than if they'd been running a normal business by the end to keep everything going and to fake everything happening because they were sort of trapped by it. So yes, maybe you, maybe you live your life like that, extract as much money as you can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, patisserie value is an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's a company, you know, making outsized profit margins relative to the sector, 
just by selling cakes, which, you know, was a big warning sign. But in, in most uh, situations, it does seem, you know, tech is involved somewhere. There is some kind of technology element. Uh, that brings us to something we've discussed on the IC a lot over the years, which is intangible assets, uh, things like intellectual property, software development. Much of the debate is really about how to account for them, whether they should be capitalized, are you put on the balance sheet or otherwise. And obviously, these assets do have real value in most cases. But are there things investors should be looking out for when it comes to intangibles specifically? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think that is something to watch out for. And we should be clear, you know, there are there are things which are fraud. And then there are things which are matters of opinion. Um, you know, of course. What, what, what costs deserve to be capitalized versus what should be recorded, you know, on the income statement? Um, you know, and there's, there may become a point where you're abusing that so much, it's no longer credible because you've been doing it for a very long time. And there's no way back. But you want to be careful anyway, because, yeah, so classic things are stuffing costs into the balance sheet by capitalizing them, saying they're investment rather than just running costs, makes your business look a lot better. If you have low quality sales, so if your um, trade receivables, you know, where you've booked a sale, but you haven't, the cash hasn't arrived yet. If that total is growing faster than your sales line is, then that suggests, well, maybe some of your sales aren't actual real sales. Wirecard was categorizing, um, you know, when it was buying these useless companies, it would chalk a lot up to goodwill, but also uh, customer relationships, total just intangible assets. So if you see a balance sheet stuffed with intangible assets, then that tells you, well, that's just an accounting thing. And so why are they doing so much like booking this in accounting? What's really there? I suppose uh, another red flag after, you know, post Steve Jobs, at least, is the uh, the black turtleneck wearing chief executive, <laughs> you know, Marcus Braun, Elizabeth Holmes. If you see anyone wearing one of those, you want to run a mile at this point. Yeah, watch out for the black turtleneck, definitely. I mean, but, you know, which you can take literally, but also metaphorically, you know, there are an awful lot of companies who in the last five years have sort of wrapped themselves in um, disrupt disruption, changing industries, you know, changing the world, big picture vision. Um, and, you know, they're not exactly wearing the turtleneck, but they kind of sound like they might like to. Well, I think some of those... Issues are coming out in the, in the wash as well now, not, not in terms of fraud, but in terms of, you know, the, the sustainability of those businesses in more difficult markets, right? Do you expect to see more of these kind of things come out? I mean, obviously, in the case of Wirecard, it took a lot of research, but in a lot of cases, it can be, you know, where, as the old saying goes from Buffett, when the tide, uh, you know, goes out, that's when you uh, see you swimming naked. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of other frauds out there. And the thing which usually brings them down is when they run out of money, you know, and for, for whatever reason, you know, debt markets close or things become more difficult and you can't get any more cash. And so, you know, I'm not going to, I've got no idea about like the macro picture. I'm terrible at predicting 
that. Uh, I, you know, I'm far too cynical. But at some point, it will become harder to raise money. It's not free anymore. Inflation's come back. So I would expect, yeah, you would start to see, um, you know, fractures in business. Well, we shall all, I think, be keeping an eye on that. And I'm sure uh, our listeners and readers and investors will be as well as best, uh, as best we all can. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. Appreciate you taking the time. Oh, well, thank you very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.